Hey folks, welcome back to our ongoing coverage of the Ahmad Arbery trial. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. And today was the first of two days of closing arguments in the Ahmad Arbery case trial in which defendants Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and Roddy Bryan are each facing a count of malice murder, four counts of felony murder, and then the four predicate felony counts, two for aggravated assault and two for false imprisonment. So as not to bury the lead, the take-home message is that if I were being asked to render a verdict today after listening to the state's closing and all of the defense closing, but not yet the state's rebuttal, and having not seen any of the actual trial, I'd be obliged to acquit all three defendants of all charges. Hey folks, before I jump into the meat of today's content, however, I do have some very exciting news. Perhaps once a year, we do a Law of Self-Defense Advanced Self-Defense Law class. This is a full-day class taught live by me, streamed online to you. Again, we only do about once of these a year, and we scheduled one for this coming January, January 8th, 2022. This is a full-day course. It's the equivalent of the course I teach in person when I travel. Uh, It's the equivalent of our uh, four-DVD set course of instruction that we make available as a, a purchased product. But this one will be taught live by me. It'll be taught over Zoom. We'll have plenty of opportunity for real-time questions and answers. I promise you I'll answer every question before we shut off the webinar. Um, so if you're at all interested in getting what I really consider a law school-level education in self-defense law, this would be your opportunity. Now, we have a limit to the capacity we can have on Zoom and still have effective Q&A and so forth. So these seats go fast. If you're at all interested, I urge you to take a look sooner rather than later. If all the seats were gone this week, I would not be surprised in the slightest. That's typically what happens. So if you're interested, just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash live online. One word, live online. That's lawofselfdefense.com slash live online. Grab one of those seats before they're all gone. Let's talk first about the state's closing. It was uh, delivered by Assistant DA Linda Danikoski, uh, kicking things off this morning. And frankly, it can only be described as a really not very good at all closing argument, perhaps even qualifying as horrible. Mostly the defect was in tone and delivery, although it must be said that the presentation of facts was not very compelling and she felt obliged for some reason to make rather gross misstatements of law. I'm thinking maybe she doesn't think the law is that much in her favor. Delivery was in a mode of exasperation with lots of kind of stomping around, hand-waving, shaking of her head, as if she can't really believe she has to actually explain all this stuff. Isn't it just obvious these defendants are guilty of all the things? The tone involved a great deal of snark and snide remarks and sarcasm. And while snark, snide remarks, and sarcasm may get a chuckle from your own team and the people already on your side, They do nothing, whatever, to persuade people not on your side to come on over. Indeed, for people not already on your side, it's off-putting and a net negative. Now, presumably, the goal of the state's closing was to persuade the jury of guilt on every count, or at least on any count, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and it certainly did not have that effect on me. My overall impression of the state's closing was that it had the feel of a a largely politically motivated prosecution, one so lacking in genuine legal merit that not even the prosecutor really believed she'd proven anything like guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Now, I've heard from lawyers I respect who watched the actual trial proceedings. I did not. I was off covering the Rittenhouse trial. Just got back to the Arbery trial today. And they tell me that Denikowski's performance during the trial itself was poor. Now, I can't speak to that from personal experience. As I say, I didn't see any of her trial performance. What I saw of her on closing, however, would not suggest a great performance during the trial proper. Now, one interesting facet of Dunikowski's closing was that much of it was negatively phrased. That is, rather than make her own arguments for guilt to the jury, she spent a great deal of time predicting what the defense would argue and cautioning the jury against being fooled by the defense. That's not a very effective means of persuasion, especially when it's the state's burden to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Much of Donikowski's argument also struck me as circular. For example, she argued that the defendants ought not be able to claim self-defense for the shooting death of Arbery because they were committing felonies and chasing him in the first place. And you can't claim self-defense if you're committing a felony. But of course, that rather begs the question by assuming the underlying felonies to have been already proven beyond a reasonable doubt when that very question remains one to be answered by the jury. Denikowski also spent much time both mischaracterizing the law of citizen's arrest and mischaracterizing the state of evidence that could have contributed to a reasonable probable cause to support a citizen's arrest. She suggested, for example, that the only basis that Travis had for probable cause was a bit of secondhand information that his mother had told them. That was hardly the case, as the defense would expose in their own closing argument. Danikoski also tried the provocation attack on self-defense, much as had the prosecution in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, arguing that the mere fact that the McMichaels had pursued Arbery while armed constituted provocation that stripped them of self-defense. I do expect the question on this issue is closer here than it was in Rittenhouse, but not if the jury believes that the state has failed to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt the defendant's initial justification of citizen's arrest. If they were engaged in a lawful citizen's arrest of a reasonably perceived felon, being armed while doing so would only be prudent. So again, in summary, I found Donikoski's closing to be poor, weak, not at all compelling. But for your viewing pleasure, I do include the video of the entirety of her closing in the text version of today's content. I do have one major caution about this, though, and that is that Dunikowski spoke for almost exactly an hour, and it's my understanding that the judge has allowed each side a full three hours for closing, although the defense did go past that a little bit today. Um, but assuming it's three hours, that leaves the state with a full two hours for their rebuttal. That's rather unusual, folks, to do one hour on initial closing and then two hours on rebuttal. Usually the proportions would be the reverse of that, with rebuttal being much shorter than the initial closing argument. This matters because the defense has a chance to respond to the state's initial closing, but they have no chance to respond to the state's rebuttal, barring some very odd circumstances that are unlikely to occur. And this strikes me as a likely scenario for the state planning to ambush the defense with a bunch of arguments to which the defense would wish they had an opportunity to respond, but which they'll just have to sit and listen in silence. This could make a big difference because the state's rebuttal is, of course, the last argument the jury will hear on this case before going into deliberations, and it carries corresponding weight. This weight imbalance is further aggravated by the reality that the defense closing will have been heard an entire day before the jury goes into deliberations, 
while they will have heard the state's rebuttal only minutes prior. Well, I guess we'll find out tomorrow morning, though, at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time when the court comes back into session and the state begins its final rebuttal, which we will, of course, be live streaming and live commenting on in real time at Legal Insurrection. So let's dive now into the defense closing. The defense closing argument took a cumulative period of about three and three quarters hours, but was split into separate closing for each of the defendants. The defense began with the closing argument for Travis McMichael, made by attorney Jason Sheffield, followed by the closing argument for Greg McMichael, made by attorney Laura Hogue, and finally the closing argument for William Roddy Bryan, made by attorney Frank Koff. I find the closing arguments by all three defense attorneys to be vastly superior to that of Assistant D.A. Donikowski. Each built their closing around something of a theme or story arc that facilitated the ability to address the nine separate counts in a coherent way. The attorneys also accurately presented the relevant law, mostly accurately, unlike the many misrepresentations of law made by the state. Uh, attorneys Sheffield and Hogue were particularly good. Uh, attorney Koff did a perfectly fine job, maybe not quite at the same level, but fortunately his client really has inherently the more defensible position given that Brian didn't actually shoot anybody, didn't even bring a gun, and apparently had no actual coordination with the McMichaels at all. So let's look at the Travis McMichael closing first uh, by attorney Jason Sheffield. Now, curiously, even before Sheffield was able to begin his closing argument, before the jury was even brought into the courtroom, Assistant DA Donikowski felt compelled to run up to the judge, metaphorically speaking, and point an accusatory finger at Sheffield. She was upset that he was apparently going to be using exhibits that she had not previously seen, presumably exhibits she feared would be compelling to the jury. As Sheffield correctly pointed out, however, this is closing. And during closing, there's liberal permission to use demonstrative exhibits just as long as what they're demonstrating was actually presented as evidence during the trial itself. And ultimately, Judge Timothy Walmsley asked only for a modest adjustment to a single PowerPoint slide, and the rest of the demonstrative exhibits were good to go. I actually posted a comment at the time that Assistant DA Donikowski, in her objection, looks scared here. And it's not the first time today that I had that definite impression. I suspect she sees her case in real danger. Sheffield put a lot of emphasis on Travis's Coast Guard experience, which was largely nine years as a boarding officer. This is a position with many law enforcement officer-like responsibilities, including arrest, search, officer presence, de-escalation, aggressive response techniques, use of small arms, weapons training, weapons retention, stuff like that. He also did a great job of providing context to what the local neighborhood was going through during that period. And frankly, it was a set of circumstances that's become all too familiar to me in many of these high-profile, politically energized cases. So here's the general theme. A community finds itself suddenly awash in crime. Generally, property crimes of varying degrees, some definitely endangering life, so petty theft of items left unattended, lawnmowers taken from open garages, outright felony burglaries, even home invasions. And the police either decline to respond or the response is ineffective. The community decides they need to do something themselves. They start neighborhood watch, they buy guns, they start calling in suspicious activity and license plate numbers to 911. And then there's a confrontation between a member of the neighborhood and a miscreant, with the miscreant ending up shot dead, 
usually in circumstances that look overwhelmingly like lawful self-defense. Nevertheless, and especially if the dead miscreant turns out to be a racial minority or of a political faction favored by the progressive left, there's an immediate hyper-politicization of the event as racist or white supremacist or otherwise beyond the pale. The neighborhood member, now the defendant in a murder trial, suddenly finds his life destroyed and facing the prospect of the rest of their life in prison, and the only thing that can save them is a fair and impartial jury. That was the pattern in the George Zimmerman shooting, it was the pattern in the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings, and it is the pattern in the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. What had been a charming little community was being ravaged by property crimes and burglaries. Homeowners began installing security cameras all over their homes for the first time. Parents would not allow their children to play outside after dinner, and then not at all. People began keeping guns accessible and talking with each other in person and on social media about the growing crime problem. They also began to make a lot of calls to 911, but the police response was ineffectual as the suspicious persons were usually gone by the time police arrived. Apparently, one of the criminal predators committing serial property crimes in this neighborhood was one Ahmad Arbery. Arbery had been caught repeatedly on surveillance camera, generally in the dark of night inside a local home under construction from which thousands of dollars of property had been stolen over a relatively short period of time, and again, generally in the dark of night. On at least one occasion, he'd been frightened into flight by neighbors, actually by Travis McMichael, seeing him lurking in the shadows among houses and having headlights put on him as the neighbors called 911. Travis McMichael himself had a pistol stolen from his car. By the way, folks, please don't leave guns in your car. This is what happens. And a short time before the February 23rd death of Arbery had himself spotted Arbery lurking by the home under construction in the dark, called 911, put his headlights on Arbery, observed Arbery realizing he'd been spotted and reaching for his waistband as if for a weapon, which alarmed Travis McMichael, as it should have, the 911 recording made contemporaneously with these events was played in court, and you can clearly hear the stress in Travis's voice. Sheffield hit on the important legal and evidentiary points in his closing. Felony burglary does not require that any property be actually stolen, for example, so all the state's talk about Arbery not having stolen property in its possession was completely irrelevant. Similarly, there was never any evidence introduced at any time in the trial that Arbery ever recreationally jogged through that neighborhood. Not a single family member or friend or resident of the community testified to anything like that. Sheffield also spent a great deal of time, important time, on the conditions required for a valid citizen's arrest. Obviously, the entire linchpin of the defense here, if the citizen's arrest was lawful, Everything was almost certainly lawful as well. If the citizen's arrest was unlawful, however, then likely all the subsequent conduct begins to look a lot like the felonies the state claims them to be. Now, in my own analysis of the relevant Georgia citizen's arrest statute, which has since been repealed, it was my position that the statute required mere reasonable suspicion. If the suspect being subject to a citizen's arrest was in flight from a felony, Otherwise, I concluded the arrest would require probable cause, a substantially higher threshold than reasonable suspicion. The lawyers on closing, however, and presumably throughout the trial, adopted the higher probable cause standard, which surprised me given that none of the defendants claimed to have actually seen Arbery steal something. So it seemed unlikely that probable cause could be established and of no probable cause. Well, under this standard, then there's no lawful citizen's arrest and the whole 
thing collapses. The position of the defense, however, is that the grounds for probable cause should not be limited strictly to the observations made and knowledge acquired in the moments immediately preceding the pursuit of Arbery. Rather, they took a totality of the circumstances view of probable cause that incorporated everything the defendants knew about the felony burglaries in the neighborhood generally and at that home under construction in particular, as well as everything the defendants knew about Arbery. Because Travis in particular knew that the person he had induced to flee from that property on the prior occasion just a couple weeks earlier when he'd had 911 on the phone was the same person that was fleeing on February 23rd. He knew the same person was on video plundering the home and so forth. So what justified the reasonable perception of probable cause for the citizen's arrest on February 23rd was not just Arbery's apparently felonious conduct on February 23rd, but his apparently felonious conduct on prior occasions as well. Not a bad argument, and one that begins to look a great deal like probable cause for a lawful citizen's arrest under the then existing statute. An analogy to this might be if a police officer had possessed all the Arbery-related information and prior conduct that Travis McMichaels had possessed, and then also observed Arbery's flight conduct the afternoon of February 23rd, would that officer have had probable cause to make an arrest? And the answer is certainly yes. Now, while Travis was not a police officer on February 23rd, the probable cause standard is the same in the context of the then-existing citizen's arrest law. Sheffield then does a deep dive on just about every step of the interaction from the point of Arbery is first spotted in flight to the point of his death resulting from his fight for Travis's shotgun. But stepping through all that is beyond the scope of a blog post. Instead, I will present in the text version of today's content for your viewing pleasure, the video of attorney Jason Sheffield's closing argument. His final arguments to the jury were interesting as well. He characterized Travis as someone who, in his Coast Guard experience, had entered dangerous waters to save those in peril. And then on February 23rd, he was doing the same on behalf of his community. And now the defense was asking the jury to return the favor, do the same for Travis, and find him not guilty on all charges. So in short, Sheffield presented a compelling narrative of innocence for his client, Travis McMichael. Now, the Greg McMichael closing argument, this was presented by attorney Laura Hogue, and she also did a great job, arguably with one exception, a notable exception, gross exception, I'll get to in a moment. Uh, Hogue hit heart on the notion of community, neighborhood, safety, how we all wanted to live in a place like that, and how all those qualities were being destroyed by criminal predation in that particular neighborhood. She also spared no punches in noting that Arbery was very much part of that criminal predation. Now, unlike what we saw in the defense closing in Rittenhouse, uh, however, Hogue expressed genuine sympathy for Arbery's tragic fate, as well as for his family. In his teens, she acknowledged he'd apparently been a lovely boy with great potential. But in his 70s, he went off the rails. And by the time of his encounter with Travis McMichael, he'd simply become a criminal thieving and plundering his way through life. She noted that it was incontestable, that it was Ahmad Arbery returning night after night, repeatedly caught on camera at the same time thousands of dollars worth of property was disappearing. Did we have a picture of Arbery walking off with property? No. But the only reasonable inference of someone skulking around another's home at night with valuable property found missing the next day is that the person skulking was plundering that property and engaged in felony burglary under Georgia law. 
At one point during Hoag's closing, Assistant DA Donikowski felt compelled to object that some statements being made by Hoag were not actually in the evidence presented at the trial. The point, the objection, was really inconsequential, and Hoag wasn't meaningfully hindered in her closing argument. And looking at my notes now, I see I wrote down at the time, for a second time now, I live commented, Prosecutor Donikowski sounds scared. Hoag also pointed out that given Arbery's actual conduct, conduct of which he was, of course, fully aware, it's his own conduct, there could be no real doubt that he knew exactly why he was being pursued on February 23rd, redoubling his efforts at flight when informed that the police were coming, that he was reasonably suspected of being a felony burglar. An innocent recreational jogger has no need to fear a police response. A previously convicted felony burglar very much does. Hoag also mocked the state's characterization of Arbery as merely doing a looky-loo in an open, unsecured construction site, noting that it's not a looky-loo when thousands of dollars of property is being taken and that open, secured construction site was somebody's dream home, trying to be built, and fully sufficient for Georgia's felony burglary statute. It's all just a property crime, she said, until it's your property being taken, your home being invaded, your children who can't play outside anymore for fear of their safety. She also mocked the state's repeated characterization of the defendant's decision to pursue Arbery as a driveway decision, which she repeated endlessly. Hogue noted that the defendants were not the only people engaged in a driveway decision that day. So had Arbery himself when he walked up the driveway to that home under construction and snuck in once again. In wrapping up, she also nicely braced the jurors for their duty. Deliberations are not a negotiation. There ought to be no compromise. The jurors may talk and debate, but at the end of the day, they must each come to what they individually feel is the just verdict. And of course, Hoag judged that on these facts and law, the only just verdicts must be not guilty on all counts. The one misstep I mentioned earlier was Hoag's reference to Arbery's long, dirty toenails during her closing. Now, I know that's gross, but apparently some of the defense had argued during the trial that one of the reasons we know or can infer that Arbery wasn't simply a recreational jogger is that he had long, dirty toenails and a real jogger would keep their toenails neatly trimmed. I don't really get it either. But in any case, other than the toenails thing, a very good job by attorney Laura Hoag for Greg McMichaels. Finally, the Roddy Bryan closing argument by attorney Frank Goff. Uh, the defense wrapped up there. And the most remarkable part of this close to me was that it was apparently revealed during the trial that there was no real coordination between Bryan and the McMichaels at all. Indeed, they hardly knew each other. On this day, there was no communication between them at any time prior to the actual shooting and no coordinated effort with respect to Arbery at all. Further, Brian did not know and had no way of knowing that the McMichaels were armed until moments before the fatal shot was fired. He could not have known that a shot would be fired, and by the time it was apparent that shots were being fired, he was down the road from the scene and not in a position to do anything about it anyway. All of that is much to Brian's favor in his legal defense. He does, however, also appear to have some weaknesses, which to my eye seem to spring less from evidentiary merit than they do from some kind of odd cognitive disability or poor judgment in speaking on Brian's part. He seems to struggle for words and say things in an odd way. So indeed, Goff opened up his closing statement by noting to the entire court that certainly no one would ever claim that William Roddy Brian was the smartest guy in the room. 
Apparently, Brian had made a number of statements to police that were readily amenable to deliberate misinterpretation by police and prosecutors. So, for example, uh, when describing approaching Arbury at some intersection while in his pickup truck, Brian might describe that encounter as, and that's when I ran into him at the corner. Now, if I were to tell my wife that I'd run into her sister at the supermarket, my wife wouldn't assume that meant I'd run her sister over with my car. But that's how the prosecution sought to characterize Brian's statement. Even though there was zero physical evidence on Brian's vehicle or on Arbery's person that he'd been struck by a vehicle at speed. So mostly Goff repeatedly pointed out that Brian didn't have a gun, didn't shoot anybody, wasn't a party to the McMichaels, uh, had no idea what intentions they might have, had fully cooperated with the police from the first moments after the encounter, as had all the defendants, by the way, and, and so forth. So kind of distancing himself from the McMichaels. Goff also made a bunch of technical legal arguments about why uh, Brian bore no criminal liability, including things like lack of causation between his conduct and Arbery's death, lack of the necessary intent, uh, lack of means, and a variety of other kind of technical legal arguments. All in all, it was a solid job by attorney Kevin Goff for his client, William Roddy Bryan. And of course, the video for that is also included in the text version of today's content. Now, before I let you go, I have another general observation to make in the context of many of these high-profile, politically-motivated prosecutions, and I'll title this portion of today's content, The Dog That Did Not Bark in the Night. Now, often these cases that are brought for political purposes have little or no actual legal merit, but politics demand that they be prosecuted. So what to do, what to do, what to do? Well, one common approach by less than ethical prosecutors is to throw some particularly inflammatory claim into the charging document or the criminal complaint or the information used to drag the defendant into court. Think of it as an accelerant used as a cheat to start a fire pit blaze. A little bit of gasoline goes a long way to get logs to ignite. In the case of George Zimmerman, the accelerant used was the claim that George Zimmerman had racially profiled Trayvon Martin. In other words, targeted Martin for lethal attention solely because Martin was black. Clearly racist conduct. The claim was buttressed when news media released a doctored version of Zimmerman's 911 call, which was made to look as if Zimmerman had spontaneously offered up Martin's race to the police dispatcher. In fact, the dispatcher had asked about the race. When the case got to actual trial, however, this claim of racial profiling was never mentioned, never argued, never supported by even the thinnest read of evidence. Given how potent such a fact would be if supported by evidence, one can only assume there was no evidence to support it. In other words, the whole racial profiling claim, the linchpin of the state's sworn information, the accelerant that finally scorched Zimmerman into a trial charged with malice murder, malice predicated on racial animus in the form of that racial profiling, it was all nonsense. It was a complete and utter fabrication. But that was fine, I guess, because the claim did what the prosecution needed it to do. It got George Zimmerman into court where the prosecution could beat on him for a few weeks and maybe get a conviction despite the lack of legal merit to the charges. And if Zimmerman got acquitted, as he did, well, that's fine, too. The process itself would prove a vicious punishment, and it has. In this case, with Ahmaud Arbery, the accelerant was the claim that one of the McMichaels had stood over Arbery's dead body and contemptuously said stupid N-word, except, of course, saying the actual N-word portion. Clearly a sign of racist motive and intent, right? The horror 
Naturally, this claim of racist conduct was central to the defendants here being charged with multiple counts of murder and other felonies. The number of references to the stupid N-word statement made in the actual trial? None. Not one. It's disappeared. But that's fine, I guess, because the claim did what the prosecution needed it to do. It got the defendants into court where the prosecution could beat on them for a while and maybe get a conviction despite the lack of legal merit to the charges. What's interesting is that nobody ever looks back and notes, hey, that claim that was made in the charging document that made the whole document apparently viable, that turned out to be complete nonsense, meaning the legal grounds for dragging this defendant into a murder trial was inherently defective. Shouldn't we maybe not do the trial then? I mean, that seems to me to be the only appropriate remedy, but that never happens. Okay, finally, as I noted at the start of today's content, if I were obliged to arrive at a verdict based solely on today's closing argument, it would be an easy call for acquittal on all charges. The state came nowhere close to convincing me of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt on any of the counts in this indictment for any of the defendants. That said, the state's not done yet, and there remains the possibility that they'll deliver an explosive ambush rebuttal tomorrow, especially given the full two hours they appear to have set aside for the effort. Okay, folks, that's all I have for all of you tonight on this. Um, remember, join us live tomorrow at Legal Insurrection starting at 8 or 8.30 in the morning Eastern time. We'll be live streaming and live commenting tomorrow's rebuttal by the state and the reading of the jury instructions to the jury. So please join us there. Also, of course, remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill. You also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. All right, folks, until tomorrow morning, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.